Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and we will be discussing all sorts of topics about current trends in the wine industry. You can find our past episodes on iTunes at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. I'm Kim. How are you today, Mark? Great, Kim. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. We've got some uh, great articles to talk about today and some questions that from, from our students and customers come up from time to time. The first one is a question about wine headaches. So we're going to look into the science behind wine headaches. I get this one a lot from people, don't you? Yeah, we've discussed this so many times together, Kim. It's such a popular topic, but a lot of times very misunderstood. So when people come to me and say, oh, I can't drink that because it gives me a headache. You always just want to hold your breath and approach it in a political way, I guess, to kind of explain or get more detail to, to people why this happens. Yeah, you sort of have to be, or at least we feel like we have to be diplomatic when we talk about wine headaches because there is a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation out there. So first and foremost, I know we mention this often, but sulfites will not give you headaches. So it's not because the wine contains added sulfites if it does. Sulfites are a natural preservative. And if you do, in fact, have a sulfite allergy, it's not going to present as a headache. And there is a small number of the population that that do have legit allergies to sulfites, but it will kind of stuff up your head and your face and it will make you feel like you're having an actual allergic reaction. And you could get swelling in your mouth and in your throat and those sort of really bad allergic reactions. But if you do have a real sulfite allergy, it means that you also can't eat a whole bunch of other things that have added sulfites like dried fruits, a lot of canned goods like soups, preserved frozen things like french fries. So there are a lot of other things out there that folks with sulfite allergies do have to be aware of and careful. So if you can eat dried apricots, but wines give you some problems, you know it's probably not the sulfites. And I still have not, I don't know if you have, Kim, but I still have not seen any scientific or medical evidence linking sulfites to headache. Nope. So Nothing. Yeah. And I would think this is such a popular topic. I would think someone would medically come up with something to go the opposite way, but it never happened. So it must be true, right? That it does not. Well, we, we, yeah, we, we've never seen anything, any scientific research that proves or even points in the direction that sulfites are responsible for headaches. You know, they could be responsible for other things, but not necessarily headaches. But what does contribute to people's headaches after they drink wine? So that really is kind of the big, the big question. And it often happens with red wines more than it happens with white wines. That's not 100% of, of the time. I know a lot of people who have issues with sparkling wines or who have issues with white wines. But I would say a good 75% of the people that we talk to that say that they have a either a headache or some sort of unpleasant response to a wine occurs with a red wine. Yeah, which is interesting because usually, typically a white wine has more sulfur put exactly. in it than red. Yeah, so, so white wines have more sulfites added to them generally because red wines have the added benefit and power of their tannins, which are another type of natural antioxidant that will keep the wine either aging longer or keep it fresher for a little bit longer than a white wine. I think what concerns me, Kim, when people mention they get a headache is if the person says they got an immediate headache. Mm -hmm. So to me, there's the headache you get the next day. When you've maybe just had too much to drink. Too much to drink or some other factor that we're going to talk about causes a headache. But to get that effect immediately 
after sipping a wine, that is hard for me to relate to and understand how it happens. Unless you have a real allergy or something to some of these substances that are in wine, which is probably a very extreme case. Mm-hmm. Have, or, have you heard people your, say that? I mean, I know, headache? I don't necessarily know people who have immediate headaches, but who have immediate responses of some other sort. So like, allergy related. Yeah. So yeah. like a lot of Rash people will start to get all flushed. Their, their noses will turn red. Yeah. yeah. So part of it could be physiologically, your system doesn't produce the enzymes that break down alcohol well. And we see this certainly with certain populations of people from certain countries, but we also just see this randomly through the population. I have an aunt who, after two sips of wine, her face is completely red. And chances are that she has a an issue with this enzyme that doesn't break down alcohol well. So that is one thing. But then there are also these natural compounds in wines, and they're called phenolic flavonoids. Uh, the tannins are one of these, and then a lot of flavor compounds as well, that people's bodies can react poorly too, which can result in some physiological nasties, I guess you could say. Yes. So they were saying these tannins, these compounds cause the brain to release serotonin. Mm -hmm. So does serotonin release cause headaches? Don't know. I never really researched that, but it seems like the brain is doing something. So maybe it's an effect. Yeah. That the body is releasing other chemicals in response to what the wine what the consuming of the wine has introduced to your body. And so it's almost like your body is fighting back against yeah. the wine. And or it's I was causing thinking it's a protection stuff. thing, giving yeah. you the headache, saying, okay, oh, I don't, oh, you know, it's I don't like, like a red this. alert. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking, more of a protection of the body. <laughs> it's the little, the klaxons going off and it's saying, alert, alert, don't drink any more of that, it's bad for you. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, and then the second substance we always talk about that can affect you is the histamines, Kevin. Mm-hmm. A lot of our listeners, the histamines are actually a byproduct of fermentation. So naturally they're in the wine. Right. And, and a lot of times there is evidence that histamines can cause headaches. Right. Because they're fruit products, you know, fruits, vegetables, flowers, trees, grasses, all of the things that you think about that cause allergic reactions to people, whether it's flowers or ragweed or, in a, you know, certain people have allergies to the substances that are in the skins of certain fruits, whether it's apples or pears, and oftentimes it is grapes. So sometimes those compounds that are found in the skins or just below the skins of fruit can kick off this reaction in certain people. And a lot of the times it's a histamine reaction. Yeah, and it is a chemical that's released. And I did see another related article where there was an Italian producer, Vigeli. They are making wines where they're eliminating histamines from their wines. Mm, I saw that too. It's something, it's not in mass. Massachusetts, of course, but I thought that was interesting that they're approaching it from that point of view. Right. You know, you see people approach it from the sulfide point of view, but I've never seen anyone from the histamine. Yeah, point so of it's view. a hypoallergenic wine. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Right? That's cool. And that's, you know, it's interesting to see science tackling the same problem in different ways and seeing what happens and what really makes a difference. So let's give some advice, Kim. And I know in the past, I'm going to put you on the spot because I know in the past you told me there was a certain varietal that you can't drink because it gives you a headache. It does. So I'd like, you know, kind of explain that. Is this something you would say because of that variety? Would you say to other people when they say to you, I get a headache, do you say, do you drink Malbec because I get a headache? (laughs) Right? 
is Malbec the great? It's Malbec. Yeah. I can't I can't have more than a couple of ounces of Malbec. Like I know now that if I were to have two glasses of Malbec over the course of a night, I'm waking up with a wicked migraine the next day. I just I know it's a trigger for me. So do and you approach that when people tell you I do I, I don't ask specifically, hey, does Malbec do it to you? But I do try to get to the bottom of is it something specific? Like can you drink Pinot Noir all right, but not this other thing? Or what wines have you had recently that have caused this reaction? Because oftentimes I want to get to the bottom of, are you drinking a higher alcohol wine? And that might be part of my problem with the Malbec is because a lot of them are 14, 15% alcohol. And I just don't drink high octane wines. The wines that I tend to drink tend to be closer to 11, 12, maybe 13%. So I'm, I'm kind of an a drinker of the lighter levels of wine. And if I go a little overboard on something that's bigger and more powerful, then I could get myself into trouble. But maybe it's not just the alcohol in Malbec. Maybe there is one of those phenolic flavonoids that are unique to that grape variety that just throws me for a loop. So I do try to figure out if there is something specific that has caused people's reactions in the past and then try to work with that. And if they're like, oh yeah, you know, Merlot, blah, 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 then I'll be like, okay, don't drink any Bordeaux (laughs) because that might cause some issues too. That is actually, that is my go-to. If someone says, oh, I get a headache from a certain wine, I'll ask, are you watching the alcohol level? Mm -hmm. And I always tell people, you know, make sure you drink water too, because that will oftentimes head off a raging headache if you stay hydrated, because the dehydration is a big part of it as well. So yeah, making sure that you eat enough and that you're drinking water and that you're paying attention to the alcohol level of what you're consuming. Yeah. And a lot of times if you drink the same, if you're a person who drinks the same brand all the time, you're probably fine with it. Mm -hmm. Say that's 13%. And the next day you go out, they don't have your brand. You change. It might be a half a percent higher and that's what hurt you. I mean, it could be a 1% higher. That'll really hurt you. Mm -hmm. So that is the key thing for me to always ask. And many times in these articles that mention headaches, they're not talking alcohol. They're talking these other byproducts. But one of the interesting things, Kim, I wanted to also talk to you about was we were saying that malolactic fermentation you talked about, and we talked about the byproduct of fermentation. If a wine goes through a malolactic fermentation, it's a second fermentation. So is it releasing more histamines? Is it double the amount of histamines? I was thinking of that because you have your normal fermentation, release histamines, and then you put it through another fermentation to make it a creamier wine, Mm -hmm. right? So I would assume maybe there's a link we could do to say, along with the alcohol, we could say, is that wine undergoing malolactic fermentation? To so you're saying to a headaches? response to this, the certain acids. So for, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this term, malolactic fermentation, wines have different types of acid in them. And one of the main ones after you ferment is malic acid, which is the same kind of tart acid that you will experience when you, say, eat a Granny Smith apple. So it's it's sort of that, that real tight kind of somewhat harsh acid. And then this process called malolactic fermentation, there are bacteria that will change that malic acid into softer lactic acid, which is the acid that we find in milk and cheese. So it's this change of the acid structure. And I would think that it that would change the complexity of the wine and change obviously changes the chemical makeup. So maybe there would be some sort of 
physical response that your body might be having to the lactic acid versus the malic acid, or there's something created during that second fermentation process that produces something else that then kind of kicks your your system into some sort of reactionary response. Yeah, I'm sure like our listeners, when I was talking that geeky stuff, they're saying, what the heck is Mark is talking, talking about? about? And then Kim talks and we're like, whoa. Right? <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it's another process that you can research to see maybe maybe that's the issue. And one other issue that I hear from people often is that they can't drink sparkling wine, that bubbly wine gives them headaches as well. And I, when I hear this, I try to figure out how is the, what's the production method of the sparkling wine that's giving you a headache? Is it Prosecco or is it Champagne method? And the reason why I ask that question is because for Champagne method and especially true French Champagne, that wine spends a lot of extra time sitting on the yeast cells that after they've done their job of fermenting the juice into wine, they all sit there together. They float to the bottom and they change the flavor of the wine and they change the sort of chemical makeup of the wine and they add all these different sort of proteins to it. So sometimes I wonder if people are having a reaction to whatever happened in the wine when it was sitting with the yeast and that it's it's more of a yeast reaction and less of a grape juice reaction. And so sometimes I think that maybe that is an issue as well. I like how you mentioned that. And I was, I was thinking the other way, like a carbonation headache, mm, you mm-hmm. know, so I guess you can eliminate, is it carbonation? Do you drink other carbonated right. beverages? Do you drink sparkling water? Do you, you have soda? that problem? If you don't, then exactly what you said it has to be something with the yeast, yeah. right? So, good point. Thank you. You're listening to the wonderful world of wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to find past episodes of our show, please go to iTunes or SoundCloud and search The Wonderful World of Wine. So we've been talking about headaches, people say, are being caused by wine, Kim, and now we're going to go into additives in wine that mm. people say may cause headaches. The messy business of additives in wine. We found this on winesearcher.com. And we've always talked about additives and the TTB. When a wine is comes out, the only additive that is required for the government to tell you is any wine are sulfites. So I think a lot of times related back to the headaches, people think, yeah, I'm getting a headache because it says on the bottle contains sulfites. But there are so many other things that are additives in the wine that can be related to these headaches. And that you, the consumer, don't necessarily know about or can even find information about. We talked recently about tech sheets and wineries listing all of their production methods and where the grapes were grown and like all that nitty gritty stuff. But you very rarely will find information about these sort of extra things above and beyond grape juice and yeast that are added to wine. Even things that are fairly common in the industry, like adding a little bit of extra acid or, you know, there are a lot, there are a lot of things that that are added that are just in the natural, normal course of making wine, fining and filtration additives that have been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. But it's hard for you, the consumer, to find information about that. 
that stuff. Yeah, and I think the funny thing in this article, Kim, was why the author was thinking about it is they were in a vineyard and they saw a dog actually peeing on the grapes. <laughs> yeah. So they're thinking, okay, is that pee counted as being in my wine? And we've <laughs> talked about this in the past as well as they had a term, was it matter other than grapes? Yeah. was a big thing Mog. a while back where big wineries that harvest by machine, they're just having these huge machines. They're going in the fields. They're scooping up whatever, animals, what, whatever, like, right? Poor little lizards. And and that is going stuck. in your wine if it's a mass-produced wine. They're not hand, really hand-sorting that stuff out. So th- it was funny the way this author looked at it is that, yeah, things are going on here that are probably additives in my wine that I don't know about. Right. And I think a lot of this is a, I wouldn't say it's reactionary, but folks who are vegetarian and vegan and are asking these questions, they're asking, well, what is in my wine? Is there anything that is that will make it a non-vegan friendly wine if I drink it? And one of the big things is egg whites as a fining agent, which is a very common tool that winemakers will use to make their wines a little clearer. Just like if you want to clarify a soup, you can use egg whites. If you want to clarify a wine, you can do the same thing. Now, the egg whites don't remain in the wine, but if you are a very strict vegan, I can see how this could be an issue because egg whites are used in the production um, and you don't want to use anything that is an animal product in, in your in your food products. Yeah, so those are additives people should be aware about. And those are additives that are actually on the list of approved substances that can be added into wine. But that's a pretty long list. Yeah, but eggs and milk and fish bladder, that's on the list right. at, with along with acids and everything else. But I was thinking... What have we seen in the news lately that people were concerned of finding in the wines? And of course, we talked earlier about sulfites. Then there was a little while back, there was a a problem with people finding radioactive isotopes Mm -hmm. that were blown over from Japan. Right, from the the Fukushima disaster in 2011. They're actually using it to date and legitimize certain wines that they feel like could be made fraudulently. So if you have super high-end California Cabernet that you're worried that your bottle is a counterfeit, you can carbon carbon test it. And if it has this isotope of, I think it was one of, it was a sulfur compound, but that was blown over from the nuclear disaster. If you know that that wine has that, that element, <laughs> like little marker in it, then you know that your wine is legit, which is sort of a crazy way of, you know, this yeah. intersection of high-end wine and science. But people were all freaking out that they had, you know, nuclear waste in, right. their, in their wine. And then the other thing that was popular too was pesticides. There yeah. was a big thing about round up. That's what I was being say used too. in the vineyards and it's getting on the grapes and they can detect it. So there's been a lot of articles recently about even organic wines in California are showing do show signs of pesticides like Roundup in it because things get blown around. If you're an organic winery and you're right next to a conventional winery, all this stuff that is on that conventional or being sprayed at that conventional site, that stuff drifts. So. Yeah. And then we talked about what, that with, with smoke taint, where, mm-hmm. with fires and they blow into these people's vineyards. And I've seen also recently where the people in Northern California, which is a very big cannabis growing region, the oils are actually blowing from those plants onto the oh, that's vineyard plants. So they're actually adding this substance to, to grapes. So. so it's, yeah, so it's like Australia. You know, Australian wines I always find have a very distinct sort of eucalyptus flavor and aroma to them. Um, and they think that that's actually legit, that they're the eucalyptus oils from the trees kind of float around and land on the grapes and then get into the flavor of the wine. So that's something interesting to watch for Northern California. Yeah, mm. so there's 
additives that they're intentionally putting in. There's right. additives that are non-intentional or people might not know are being added. And then there was looking at uh, the other thing that's used all the time, obviously, in the production of wine is yeast. So then they were saying, what's going on in commercial yeasts? Are there additives in that that we don't know about that's in the wine that could be causing issues? So, But the way I look at it, too, there's a lot of good things of these additives are doing. If it wasn't for certain things, the wine wouldn't be clear. It wouldn't be bright. You wouldn't have the colors. And that's what people want. But to get that final product, you need something to be done to it. Right. And like people, love a- their, people love their slightly sweet wines, even if they don't admit it. And in order for that, you need sugar. And if those grapes aren't ripe enough, you know, certain wineries might be adding additional grape sugars after the fermentation is done to get the sweetness level of that up. And you're not going to find that just by doing a Google search for that wine. Yeah. And I think it was it was interesting. When we talked to Bob from La Cantina about additives. He was mentioned how he uses acids, but it was no big thing yep. because that's just what winemakers do. It's they just part acidify, of the toolkit. Yep. And, but when people hear that there's acids in their wine, they, they freak out, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, I mean, but I think it's more they want to know. But if the winemakers are not concerned about it, then I don't think we should be concerned about it because the final product is what you're happy with, right? You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find out more information about Mark by going to his website, franklinlickers.com, and more information about myself by going to my website, vinitaswineworks.com. So Mark, when a customer comes into you and says that they like full-bodied wines, what do you take that to mean? Ooh, body. Body to me is a weight or a mouthfeel. I guess it also, like you say to me all the time, it leads to more questions, right? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Does anybody ever couch it in terms of the the idea of structure, like a structured wine? No, very rare. Very rare to even hear that. This is one of those, I talk to people all the time about there's sort of this disconnect between how wine professionals talk about wine and then how wine consumers talk about wine. And I, I usually refer to it as wine professionals spend a lot more time smelling their wine than actually tasting their wine, whereas consumers are really only concerned with what it tastes like and don't really care about what it smells like. And this concept of structure of a wine is one of those wine geeky things that I think just wine writers and wine professionals talk about. But it's an important concept. And so I think we should unpack it a little bit and then talk about other terms that wine drinkers might be more used to hearing or more commonly used terms that can refer back to the same thing. Yeah. When I I think I was first introduced to this structure in wine, I was always thinking, and maybe uh, listeners are thinking it now, is how can a liquid be related to structure? Right. right. It's a hard concept. It's like the, it's like the idea of dry. It's like, well, it's a liquid. It's wet. How can it be dry? And structure is sort of the same thing. You know, we're talking about a liquid. How can it have structure? We also use the word backbone, all these things that are almost architectural in nature. And yet we're referring back to a, a, a liquid product. So Kim, do you use the term structure? I think sometimes I do yeah. throw it out, but it, it's not it's not really an easy concept, especially if you've never really tried to put what you're experiencing in a wine into language terms. You know, you might know that something tastes good to you or feels good in your mouth, but you don't necessarily know why. So when we talk about structure in a wine, it is usually based on the tannins and the acids and sometimes the alcohol. So it is a feeling in your mouth and not necessarily a flavor in your mouth. And I break down wine, you know, wine tasting and how it actually tastes in your mouth as flavors versus 
is textures. So if a wine feels heavy, if you taste it and you're drinking it and it almost feels like it's weighing down on your tongue, that can be its structures. So you're a foodie, Kim. I am. I need you to give me your interpretation. If, if structure is a feel, we talk in, in wine, there's a fifth sense Mm. Right? You mommy? Umami. Umami. I say you mommy. Umami. You mama. <laughs> but so is would you relate to that type of texture feel structure well, yeah umami can have sort of a textural element but it's i think the actual definition in japanese is something more akin to deliciousness so it's something about bringing all of the flavors together you know we talk about foods that have umami it's like mushrooms and concentrated tomato flavors and well seared beef you know these things that have these real savory note to them. So I attach umami to more of a flavor than it is to a texture. But there is also this idea of richness. Umami rich foods have do have this kind of rich connotation. So I think in that regard, it could almost be construed as textural. So maybe it's both. Maybe umami is the two of those things together because, you know, you think about tomato paste and you think about seared mushrooms and you think about a steak and it's like, whoa, you know, that's all really rich stuff, super flavorful stuff, but also it feels big, you know, it feels feels like a big meal when you're eating it and you would want to pair that stuff with a big rich red wine as well and put all those components together and now I'm getting hungry. Yeah, and I like the <laughs> Thanks, deliciousness. Mark. I like the deliciousness, deliciousness comment, right? Yes. So, okay, so let's relate it to balance. Is it a substitute saying a balanced wine is a structured wine? No, I would say not because there are some wines I feel that are very light in body and don't necessarily have that big structure. They still have structure, but they don't have tannic structure necessarily. Their structural component of their wine might be based on acid instead. Um, Like I can think of light white wines. Um, Sancerre comes to mind. Chablis comes to mind that are based around a core of really bright, tight acidity that can be perfectly, wonderfully balanced, but not necessarily in the same way that a, a big, hearty Cabernet would be. I like how you explain that because I'm I'm pretty similar on that. If, if a wine is balanced to me, I'm thinking good fruit acid. Mm-hmm. If it's good structure to me, it's good tannin fruit acid. So it's okay. adding that tannin. So I guess to me that the difference when I use it is tannins. Okay. Because so, I think that structure still lighter wines still have to have something as their structure you know think of like a we think we think of structure as sort of the skeleton of the wine and for red wines what makes them have what you need to build a red wine around is its tannins what you need to build a white wine around is its acids that's not to say that red wines don't need acidity because they do but balance for me is different balance is you need to have the right amount of alcohol and the right amount of sugar or not sugar right amount of acid right amount of tannin right amount of flavor right amount of acid aromatics and you put all of those puzzle pieces together and that is when you have a well-balanced wine so that no one component is is jutting out and overwhelming all of the other ones and it changes depending on what the wine is so you could have a lightly tannic red wine that still has nice structure and still has beautiful balance but it's going to be a different feeling than a big hearty red the way you explained it is excellent kim because the the main thing is if someone tells you this wine has great balance you want to then say why do you think it has great 
great balance or if it has great structure, why do you think it has great structure? And what they think and what you think about it is going to maybe two different things. Yeah, it could be different. But mm-hmm. you're defining what each person thinks of that term, right. which is in the wine world is, is a great thing. And that's when you know we have these kind of great conversations about a wine specifically. But it's hard to have those conversations if you don't have the language to use. So that's why we like talking about these sorts of concepts because they're a little outlandish if you've never thought about them before in terms of wine. So to be able to throw these terms out there and then explain them, we're hoping that that will then lead you to explore some new wines and think about them a little bit as you're tasting them. And then you can say, oh yeah, I see this. I see what is adding to the structure of this wine, or I see what they mean by a wine that has a lot of acidity, but is still balanced. I think it's, you know, people shouldn't be afraid to use them if it involves bringing up more conversation. I think it's, these are great terms to use to to test people at sommeliers at a restaurant. <laughs> you know, if you say, yeah, what are you looking for today in a wine? You tell them, I'm looking for a wine with good structure. Right. And see what they bring you and then say, it brings up conversation. And it, I think the terms people should should feel good to use and right? especially if you find that you like a wine that is very that is a big structured red maybe you've tasted five different things and they all have this in common well then that is a tool that you can then use for finding new wines that you will also like so it's not just about the flavors of the wine because often we do talk about the flavors of a wine but it's it's about this other component this textural component and how the wine feels in your mouth Thank you for listening to us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark and Kim. We enjoyed exploring all things wine with you today. If you'd like to find out more about our show, you can listen to past episodes of The Wonderful World of Wine on iTunes or SoundCloud. Cheers. Cheers.